0: Hello! Hello, Kai. Welcome
1: to the photo show with your host, Michael Dalton.
0: (laughs) And co-host, Kai McBride.
1: Yes, how's it
0: going? All right. So what were you doing today?
1: Oh, I was at work.
0: Oh, it's Monday. Yeah, go Uh, figure. Yes. (laughs) Since my schedule shifted from teaching on Mondays to teaching on Fridays, I'm all messed up.
1: Uh, yes. No, I was at Columbia. We had uh, the photo, two of the photo one classes had their first critiques and uh, wanted to make sure everything got up and run smoothly. And I also replaced uh, in our 14 Besseler 23Cs, the foam seals that come down on the lamp house over the Negative carriers, I think it's probably the same ones that have been on there since uh, 20 years now, and uh, they were all funky and gunky, and most of them missing. So I got uh, – Bessler sent me these nice new ones that are die-cut, p- punch squares, and um, Dana Buell, first-year grad student, who's the DRA this semester, she and I went through and replaced them all. So that was satisfying.
0: Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, the the DRA – at Columbia's photo program is not a residence hall monitor or <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> departmental research assistant is the current term. Although technically they've actually changed the 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 thing around they're not technically DRA's anymore. Now they're fellows. So oh, okay, so she's our fellow, but DRA just stuck because it's part of the just part of the culture there to say DRA.
0: Yeah, everyone, under, everyone there understands what that means.
1: Yeah, uh, you were the DRA, weren't you?
0: I was, yes. And
1: I was the DRA, so it's like, there <laughs> you go.
0: We were both uh, just the other day at the Stephen Kasher Gallery. Uh, yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, for a, a panel talk on their exhibition on PM Daily, or PM New York Daily, they're calling it, right?
1: Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, The newspaper that was started up in the 40s i think and then ended in what i forgot the the exact date was it 50 something it,
0: it was it, i believe it was in the 50s it went on to another owner and another name for a short while but it it closed down shortly after that right yeah and it was it was interesting we i mean from from being at the exhibit we knew that it was a very progressive paper, especially for its time, and it, it had very uh, left-leaning causes, uh, you know, running through its editorials and its articles and, and photos. Uh, but the, what the panel made very clear is how, how attached it was to these very left-leaning causes and this pre-Cold War era sort of New York... Uh, leftist, even sometimes communist sympathizing, you know, atmosphere or culture that was going on at the time,
1: yeah. No, that was interesting. I, the whole panel, I mean, one person was very Adam, very well versed in the history of the paper, and he was a, a great character, too. I don't remember his Paul, name.
0: And his last name starts with an N, because he made a joke how. He loved yeah. the paper because it had his name had the same initials. Yeah, Paul Milken. that's
1: right. Uh, oh, anyway, case um, yeah. he was great giving history of the paper and showing how uh, the reproductions were far superior to anything else, any other newspaper of the time, and right. uh, it was innovative in its design. Yeah, they all. They also spoke. Uh, another panelist spoke a lot about uh, Ouija and you know uh, how really was PM that helped make him famous, which was interesting. I never realized that. I just assumed it was the different dailies. I didn't realize how much that one newspaper had to do with it.
0: Right. It seemed, um, as they said, because, first of all, it, it was printing um, in single colors, which no other newspaper was doing Right. at the time. It was using color. Um, and it, it was... It was printing photos in higher detail and and much larger than than other newspapers. So, so photographers were seeking it out as a way to show their work, and Ouija was one of those. And there was Helen Levitt and Morris Engel, Margaret Burke White, Lisette Model, mm-hmm. um, and others. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they made the tie in with the uh, Photo League, which of course was uh, he, which was similarly. Uh, similarly uh, staffed with people with the same basic politics. So uh, right, interesting to see that carry over from the photographers to the newspaper.
0: Yeah, no, it was a fascinating conversation. So I saw, I think I saw on Twitter that you, you were able to reach a, a new high in uh, <laughs> photographing uh, Newtown Creek. Well,
1: yeah, I don't know how high might not be the right <laughs> word, but. Um,
0: Another vantage point.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, what are these long-term things we've had this conversation several times already, but Mm -hmm. about how you, just when you think you should stop, then something else happens. And uh, there was a section of the Creek I could never really get to because there was a, there was a built buildings blocking it from one bank, but also because this guy had built like a ram shackle shack out of who knows what, and had been living there on the edge of it. And so it was kind of dicey to move around there. He didn't ever know when he was going to come out. And anyways, the building got torn down, and his he hasn't been living in that shack for a couple of years, and it got all ripped out of there. And it was low tide on Sunday, and I was able to finally get down and push into a section that I'd only glanced from uh, another bridge much further down.
0: Mm. And and you don't use the boat anymore, right? You lost uh, someone took the boat.
1: The boat, I think was taken and or could have just washed away, but I, mm. I think someone snagged it. So yeah, yeah, I'm without boat. <laughs> so that's why I really think this summer is the end,
0: the end of the project. Right. Well, I've been taking advantage of the bad weather to uh, get a lot of scanning done. I've been um, looking at some, some photos I took in Staten Island in the very early 90s mm. that I, you know, I, I just did this project. I, I, went, I went from... Train stop to train stop using the I think it was the SIRT if that's still what it's called, Staten Island Rapid Transit. Mm. I'm gonna have to look that up. I hope I'm not making that up, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it was called. <laughs> it was a long time ago and I, I did all these photographs. I made a, a bunch of prints and then I just put them all in a box and I've never looked at them again and mm. I've, I've just been kind of revisiting them and I really really you know I've been I've put a few of them on Instagram. On the uh, real photo show account, and uh, you know, I've been kind of digging, looking at these old photos.
1: Yeah, no, I've seen a couple of them. It is, it is interesting to see. Staten Island is one of those places that is so close and yet not usually very well depicted. Um, we, of course, talked about the uh, uh, the Austin House out there,
0: Alice Austin House, yes. Yeah,
1: and uh, you know her photographs from ancient times yeah but, the victorian
0: uh, era of photography in the united states
1: yeah exactly and then you know christina Zenski, of course i think is photographed out there a lot but mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't seen many of those photographs and they're black and white
0: yeah yeah it's a it's it's always been a, a kind of well i mean it's it's connected by a bridge and a ferry you know to new york so it's one of the boroughs that's not as easy to get to
1: yeah absolutely I had a student who uh, spent some of her childhood there. Apparently, there's some sort of like, for lack of a better term, hippie commune kind of thing that's still out there, mm. and uh, she grew up out there. And I think it was kind of a complicated story with her parents and, and being mm. out there. But um, so there you go. I, that's the last place I would have imagined that 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 uh, would be going on. But Paris,
0: apparently- yeah, it's it's a very interesting place because. There's the whole social strata is there from very wealthy to very poor. It's uh, it's it's relatively diverse in, in people and, but also uh, geographically from very industrial and urban to kind of beach communities. Right. So we also you know just had a really wonderful conversation with Rachel Stern. MFA. Yeah. This yep.
1: this will be kind of a an experimental photo uh, show for us because. It's talking about an exhibition that's currently on view, right? Right? And uh, who knows how many people listening to this will have the opportunity to go see it? Hopefully some. That's why we're putting it out now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, I don't know, I, you know I have many catalogs from shows, and I have I, I think it's interesting to hear about just her process of how she came about putting it together, whether or not you see the work in the show or not.
0: And it was it was a really interesting show to talk about because uh, the title of the show is Love 2016. And it is such an open ended to- topic that it could have it could have been really difficult to actually put something like that together. Mm. If you were trying to kind of pigeonhole it, if you were trying to to get it to fit a you know, one kind of view or one kind of idea. And and, you know, what we um, find out talking to Rachel is she was very open to many ideas.
1: Yeah, no, she's definitely not approaching it as uh, a dyed-in-the-wool academic who's made some thesis and is trying to be very uh, prescribed about what it should be. And she let it be fairly organic, and you know, let people suggest things, and then. But really, it's the just that transformation of the space that uh, is quite uh, quite Rachel Stern.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. She talks a lot about how. How the space looks is very much her and how she lives and all kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She reveals a story about Mary Ellen that she's kept Mary Ellen Mark. She's kept oh, She's to right. herself all this time. So you'll that's have to right. listen to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bonus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So how long is the show up until?
1: The 17th, if that's the Friday. it's But it's definitely through the 17th. So you've got... This week to go through the snow, and then Hmm. next week with hopefully no snow to get up there and check it out. Or, of course, uh, we should have a link to uh, the catalog that uh, Matt Magazine has also put out. So you could go through and see some of the imagery in the show just from looking at that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that. All right. Well, thanks for calling in.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Have a good night, and I look forward to uh, listening to this issue or episode, rather.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right.
1: Talk soon.
2: Alright bye. Try it again. like
0: by the way, when you're not talking, you feel free to lean back and breathe. I think I'm into else. it. I think, yeah. I, <laughs> I think it makes me feel important. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're here in Watson Hall at Columbia University. Our guest today is Rachel Stern. Hello, Rachel. Hi. And alongside me is uh, my co-host, Kai.
1: Hello.
0: So, Rachel, you just curated a show, which is up now at the Leroy Neiman Center gallery is it the center oh yeah I guess it it it's, it's the
2: Leroy Neiman gallery at the Leroy Neiman center, center for print studies for print studies yeah there we go at Columbia University <laughs> yeah,
0: Columbia. and uh the show is titled love
2: the show's titled love 2016
0: love 2016 that's right I, I actually read you're hoping maybe to do it once a year
2: yeah I would love to do love 2017 <laughs> I'm already planning it in my mind I just need to find a space for it was that the first show you've curated it's the first show that I've curated by myself. I curated one show in a similar context, like in an academic setting as an undergraduate at RISD, um, but I co-curated that show with a photographer named Matt Height.
0: So what was that experience like?
2: The first show that I curated? Oh, I'm um,
0: no, um, sorry. This show. Uh, this curating show. This Yeah, on your own.
2: Um, going on my own was really good. I think in general both, I mean, I think of this project more in terms of another more like as an extension of my practice as an artist and less as a shift into curation as like an independent concept. And in my studio and in my practice in general, I tend to work collaboratively a lot, which is great. And I love it. And it's something that's given me a lot. But I'm also trying to focus on doing things on my own, which I think is not my comfort zone and not my default. And it was um, really exciting to go my own way and pull it all together. I don't think I was expecting to get up to 47 artists when I went my own way, (laughs) Um, but it worked out.
1: Yeah, I think I read uh, that you said when you you were spending over a year putting together the list, right? And so... At one iteration of the list where it was only in the 20s, you look through the roster and you realize that they were all gay white men. And you're like, oh, my God, you know, (laughs) I I obviously have this preference. I need to like branch out. And maybe that's how it got to be such a large. No,
2: absolutely. It was really interesting to see like how my own biases, both like socially and in terms of my taste in culture, really presented themselves. And I felt really responsible to the topic that it had to be as broad a conversation as possible. Um and I think that that was a fun but definitely like weight building part of the of the challenge. Well, it's
0: an incredibly broad topic to begin with. Um yeah. and I don't think could ever be defined uh in any singular way, right? I mean, right. And I think your show reflects that as totally. well.
2: Totally. Totally. I mean, I think that my idea with the, the whole general premise or like the base of the curatorial notion is this idea that like it's basically saying like what does air look like you know it's asking a question so big that the answer could come from any person and be valid and could take almost any form and be valid so it was more an experience for me of like thinking about who I wanted to see answer answer this question at this moment which is part of why it's called love 2016 is that it's not the last word it's only the word for this moment um but yeah then pulling together the different voices seemed like the entire structure of that attempt at definition
0: and when a a topic is that broad and that open it really does become the responsibility of the curator To come up with a a certain kind of message, even if the message is this openness, right?
2: Yeah, totally. And it's so funny, like, uh, how many... I mean, I think all the time, I I would say every day since the show has started to really come together solidly of a long list of artists who should be there who aren't, because it can just go on infinitely. Um, And also... I hear every day from different people things that they see missing or that they miss on un- like don't understand their place in the roster. They're not
0: speaking of themselves, are they? <laughs>
2: um, sometimes, I, you know, some of the people in the show are in the show because they wrote to me and sort of demanded entrance, which ah. I was excited by in the context of this. That if somebody would hear there's an exhibition called Love 2016 and be so. Um, inspired by that that they insist that they participate to me that's reason enough to be there Mm. so I liked kind of the chaos by which things came together but it's funny like you know um, I did this interview with Liz Renstrom at Vice and she was looking at there's a number of like t-shirts in the show which is something that just happened which is an Mm. interesting reveal which is a lot of how the show kind of came together. And she was saying like, if I curated this show, it would be all old t-shirts and like (laughs) photos with the face scratched out and crumpled up pieces of paper. (laughs) Like she was like, where's the emo kind of. (laughs) And it's true that for a show about love, there's not a lot of sort of romantic broken hearts. It sort of goes in a different direction.
0: Well, actually romantic... Uh, brings up a, a good word that I, some of the, what I wanted to talk about because I, I read um, you know some of the interviews and reviews from Bomb Magazine and Vice and also from Humble Arts and the way uh, I think in, in, from Bomb Magazine you said that you you embrace the idea of kitsch whereas before you used to reject it because of also ideas of sentimentality as well and uh, I was thinking about what I was just actually up looking at the show before this and I, I was thinking about. What you could have meant by embracing even sentimentality, which uh, can be so problematic in terms of art, uh, as as in the way that uh, nostalgia can be problematic, uh, kind of trapping you in the past, uh, yeah. keeping you from moving on, things like that. And I, I think I saw it while I was up there. Your, I think, your idea of. And, and, and you can correct me of this sort of idea of kitchen sen- sentimentality is a, a kind of critical analysis of it, in a sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so something that in my own work as an artist has been very hard for me as I've moved sort of like further into places like Skahegan and Columbia, where I'm getting studio visits regularly, is that there's this endless conversation about kitsch. And it's one of those things where it's like when something's right in front of your face, you might not see it. Mm-hmm. So I exist mired in kitsch and I didn't I knew that my work used a certain kind of material but I didn't really think of it as being about kitsch and I would always really resent the notion that what I was doing felt kitsch because of really material indication whereas somebody like an abstract painter who makes work that I could easily call kitsch would never have that conversation brought up in their studio so I felt like kitsch was very derogatory I resented it I felt boxed in by it um And then through, actually, one of my faculty people at Skowhegan, an artist named Mark Swanson, I did a huge amount of reading about the history of Kitsch and what Kitsch actually means and where it comes from. And it's much more complicated and nuanced and illuminating in terms of my own interests than I had ever possibly understood primarily having to do with the fact that kitsch and loss or melancholy which obviously are related to sentimentality have this really strong connection so the idea that when we look at a kitsch object we're looking at an attempt at a real object a desire for a real object a desire for something that's lost or not accessible so I think in terms of like an idea like love They go hand in hand, and especially when we're talking about art, right? Nobody wants to say, My work's about love and beauty, right? That (laughs)
0: sounds (laughs)
1: yeah, you want to stay away from any kind of being overly romantic, and because you're supposed to be smart and all this other thing, right? right? And
2: I always find myself in this place where I'm like, I'm pretty sure my work's about love and beauty, (laughs) and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to say about it. So, in that regard, the love show is totally self serving, and that I wanted to create. Perhaps a critical discourse, but at least an intellectual, artistic discourse surrounding this idea—that's kind of like this, like fuddy-duddy brick. And,
0: and I think where the the sort of the the fear of, of of speaking about your work in terms of love and beauty is, people people might assume you're talking about seeing something, reading something, and reacting to something that it just makes you feel good. You feel like you've gotten something done. And and I'm I'm and much more specifically talking about this idea of sentimentality. Yeah where people share stuff on social media, where they read. Or, and, and of course, I'm, I'm also speaking uh, somewhat about the humans of New York. And the idea that you, you read these stories, and you, you almost feel like you've accomplished something by m- keeping up with this, right? By reading it, by hearing about other people's suffering. And that's not at all what your work and how you curate the show is about. And that, 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 that's what I was, I was coming back to, this idea that what you were really doing is, is challenging people on these ideas, of sentimentality and kitsch while still uh, creating a a very sort of open environment of of diversity in the show where maybe you won't relate to everything, but there'll be some things you can relate to. And because you also talk about accessibility as well. And I think that's that's part of what you were doing up there in the show.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like thinking about this idea of uh, sort of um, critical sentimentality, Leela Dare's piece is the first thing that comes to mind, which even has this like kitschy title. I hope that's okay to say, but it's called shoulder and it's, it's someone crying on someone else's shoulder. So when we look at that in its sort of plastic abstracted form, um, it's, it sounds very flat. And then of course, within the context of Lee's work, which is anything but flat, it has this really difficult, actually serious hard moment in the show where you get to that point. And even if you don't know the full story of that dynamic, It is not an easy piece to absorb. And I think that it plays with that line of sort of being like um, the the whole show does. But I think that piece really stands out as being like um, almost almost easy and then actually incredibly hard.
1: Which is a good point to jump in and say that. Uh, I guess I've been seeing shows at the Neiman Gallery since at least 2006, but yours is the first one that I can recall where there's a warning before you walk in. (laughs) Oh. On on both entrances. I did notice that. Yeah, it's like like going into a rated R movie or something. It says, you know. This
2: is like my life story now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So...
1: Viewer discretion is advised <laughs> right. or whatever. It's really
2: funny because I think of myself as being like such an uptight prude and like a high school teacher. Like I, I have this like vision of myself that obviously does not line up with the world. When yeah. I was in high when school, you
1: were
0: penises, uh, <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, this is I'm a totally a relaxed a thing to do.
2: No, um, but seriously, since my, well, they
0: were bedazzled. Come on.
2: <laughs> right. Flaccid. Yeah, there yeah, were yeah. lots That's of right. relaxed things. Um, but so, it's like, literally starting in high school, I did this project called the Underwear Project. It was, like, my first serious photo project where I photo, I made portraits of people, two, one clothes, one in their underwear in the same environment. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be at this, like, shift or something. Who knows? Right. But my high school deemed it pornographic and it was oh. kept on a shelf behind the photo teacher's desk next to the Maplethorpe book. <laughs> and in order to look at this body of work, you nice. had to make an appointment and he would go <laughs> to his office and he would pull down the curtain to his glass office door and you could look at my prints <laughs> or Maplethorpe. I mean, these were like pictures of my grandmother in her <laughs>
0: underwear and And of course that whole scene is like a going to a booth at a porn store and then you
2: have to be standing there with this somebody watching you look at the images too which is difficult so this is something that's been following me it happened at the first year show because of said bejeweled penis so like these warnings are are my little trail I kind of love it (laughs) a good scandal is worth a lot (laughs)
1: Yeah, it made me wonder walking through, like, okay, what was it that determined that this had to have the warning? I mean, the first thing you see when I come in from my office coming up the back way is, of course, there's like a penis you see. That Bryson Rand photograph. Yeah, so it was like, all right, is that? But then there's other things you could say, no, 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 this is much more disturbing.
2: Yeah, I think it's a combination of, like, um, the violence in in Sidney Pierce and Allie Coates' video, Mm -hmm. the exposed... Male nudity, of course. I don't think we would have an issue if it was female nudity. (laughs) Not in art. Not not in art. (laughs) Um, And there was one other piece that...
0: Well, there's semen on a Columbia sweatshirt. Yeah, but that
2: one I don't think was the issue. I think it's more just like, it must be mostly Bryson's. I guess that's the biggest... Could it also be and a Peter, bit of the
0: atmosphere at Columbia in, in the light of sexual harassment and things sure. like
2: that? Sure, I'm, I'm
0: hmm. certain
2: that's part of it. Well, especially um, in yeah. that office. You know, yeah. we're right. We're sandwiched between the Neiman Center and the visual arts offices, so... Right, yeah, um, that's true.
1: But uh, that reminded me of a scene where at a first-year show, I think a couple years ago, someone had a video where... Uh, was very racy I you know it looked like someone was either I mean of course there was nudity but I think there was even an implied blow job and something else going on and uh, Tom Roman and I happened to were visiting and walking through at the same time that an elementary school was going oh through and of course all the kids went right over to that piece because it was big video and they're like watching it right. like, oh my god. it's funny it's
2: funny how these things matter and don't matter I mean during open studios, it didn't even occur to me. It never occurs to me to think about that kind of stuff because I feel like I would know how it felt if I was really making something that was lascivious or offensive. And yeah. I think I have a very good meter of that, especially because of the way that I taught high school, which was always kind of trying to break th- break those rules while still being respectful to my students, etc. So, so at Open Studios, I didn't even think about it, the work in my studio or kids coming. That didn't right. even occur to me, you know. And all of a sudden the piece I had there had like a big pillow pile in the middle of the room. And all of a sudden at a certain point I looked over and the pillow pile was like filled with children. Like it had become like (laughs) the ball pit of open studios. And my studio is full of like plastic swords and stuff. So there was just like this like child chaos and surrounding that. I think there was like at least three images of like full frontal, bottomless male nudity <laughs> right. and it was kind of a nice moment where it was like these parents obviously see the photographs but the kids just see the pillow pile right and they're just yeah. doing their thing <laughs> right i mean the warnings are i understand why they're there but it's always a little silly <laughs>
1: uh I, and uh going back to this first question of so you put this proposal together that you want yeah. to do this show love 2016 and but i imagine that when you did it, you still didn't know what it was really going to become. So then what was the process of coming up with that ultimate roster and, you know, deciding who was going to be in and who wasn't going to be out? You said you already mentioned some people like pushed themselves to get in. Yeah. But, but and other than that, I mean, did you have specific pieces in mind or did you were thinking more in terms of artists you knew whose work you thought would resonate?
2: It happened in a bunch of different ways. So, the first thing that I knew right off the bat was that we were going to use Matt Life Heights' wallpaper, which is called A Dozen Roses for Tony. So, the idea was that no matter what happened in that space, you were going to be surrounded by this adoration of flowers. So, that was like the get-go. Yeah, we'll yep.
1: have pictures, but it, we—it's worth mentioning that, um, and we should talk about this in terms of the white cube as well. Is that the entire gallery is probably transformed more than I've ever seen it transformed? In Absolutely. That there's not a single bit of wall space that doesn't have. <laughs> This wallpaper, which is uh, a black background with these bright red—I guess it's a dozen roses—is it? Yeah, yeah. So
2: it's actually an image of a contact sheet. Right. So it's it's six by six film, twelve exposures, twelve roses. So it's a grid of you know this dozen roses repeated at two scales. There's the large print and the small print both yeah. up.
0: And, so the and there's s- nothing subtle about it. There, there, there are large roses. It's very dense black wallpaper against with the roses very de- you know rich red. And the letters, the, uh, the labels of the film can also be seen. So Mm -hmm. it was a real, um, you know, look at the fact that this is photography, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: It would be fun to count how many times the walls say the word Kodak. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um...
2: But so I, so I felt like that was this baseline, this glue that would really hold together whatever I wanted to put in there. Mm. And then I kind of made lists of what types of love I wanted to look at. So, you know, the first thing, obviously we th- the first one that you're going to think of is like romantic love, right? Mm. So that was the thing that I think I tried to steer away from the most. And I think that it actually happened maybe too far in the end. <laughs> huh, yeah. Um, but I tried to think about familial love, self love absence of love, love for non-human things. You know, I was trying to think about like how broad could I make it and still make it make sense. Hmm. And then the artists themselves are basically all selected for some sort of personal connection to me, not as a rule, but essentially everyone in there I have had either a personal or artistic conceptual relationship with. So a lot of it was in this round, and I think this is something that I'm thinking about Um, being very different if Love 2017 is able to happen. But in this round, it was sort of like the wallpaper and Rachel are the glue. So Mm -hmm. everybody I asked was, I mean, the range includes like artists that I've admired and had sort of distant contact with, which would include like Michelle Handelman or Lila Dare, who is related to our community and was helpful in encouraging me to come to Columbia, but not like my friend, right? So that was an artist that was like somebody I could connect to. And then it ranges all the way down to, like, my cousin who writes poetry on her Instagram account, who's a great writer. And oh, also the
0: little plaques of poetry? That's your yeah, cousin? Yeah, okay. the red
2: plaques are my mm-hmm. cousin, Natasha Oxhorn. And she's, she's a writer, but she mostly writes novels. She writes young adult fiction. So it was an opportunity to, like, take this person who's super important in my life and reinterpret or reuse or shift the context of their work into an art space in a way that it would never have happened otherwise. Um, so that range, you know, that includes like a lot of the people are people I went to Skowhegan with or RISD with, I go to Columbia with former I know from faculty different places, former faculty mentors, you know, like there's a big group. And then on that end, you you start to think about or the opposite end of that, you start to think about what would it look like if I curated a love show where I didn't know anyone in the show. We had never spoken. Mm. And I think it would feel extremely different, you know. But it's it's funny. I mean, back to your thing about my original list being so limited. Like, mm. how, how often in this moment are you curating a show and you get to think, like, oh, my God, I have no straight white men. I need to get straight <laughs> white men in my show. And it was really fun, and I got to, like, do that and think about how that's imaged and represented alongside queer artists and, you know, different types of people.
0: You but, actually mentioned... Uh, in some of the things I read, uh, being uh, interested in not queer art but the queer art aesthetic, <laughs> right? You make a distinction there, I think. I
2: would say, I would say, I probably make more of a distinction between queer theory and like mm. queer art or art communities. I mean, the queer queer art aesthetic is that's some that's a difficult territory <laughs> that I would say um, I have a love hate relationship with. Uh, part of my becoming or understanding myself as a queer person and a queer artist really comes through my work, which is to say that I sort of like blindly was someone who only read like wild and Whitman and made work based off of like Pierre Gilles. And, um, Oh, that's so weird. Of course this happens because I'm being recorded. I just lost the name. Oh, don't worry about it. Uh, James Bidgood is the name I'm trying to say, which is like my major influence. Ah, Um, (laughs) So Pierre Gilles or James Bidgood, F. Holland Day, like, you know, these like very queer photographers. And I, it wasn't intentional. Like I started wearing a Pierre Gilles swatch when I was like 11, you know, Mm -hmm. I, it was very much an organic part of who I was and it wasn't, I was in no way formally engaging with queerness or queer aesthetics. Um, and it was sort of pointed out to me from the outside that that was happening. And it was kind of a, a weird experience coming to terms with that and understanding what that meant. Um, and then realizing that it was actually what my life was. And I just didn't know how to call it.
1: Hmm. Um, uh, so to interrupt for a second, is, uh, I remember this experience I had when I was in high school. Before I went to uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, and I was probably in ninth or tenth grade. And I looked around and I realized that almost all of my intellectual influences or artistic influences were all also white gay men, you know, like, so Oscar Wilde, same thing. I was like, I was listening, I was reading Oscar Wilde, I was reading the biography of Oscar Wilde, listening to the Smiths, you know, uh-huh. it was like, it just went on and on and on. But uh, for me, it was less on the aesthetic standpoint, like I wasn't interested in, you know, Trying to mimic Oscar Wilde or any of his like sort of—I don't know. I've seen your prom picture. That's true. That's true. The prom picture does kind of make you wonder. But uh, now we have to post that prom picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's out there. It's good. Uh, But it was more just like the you know the wit and the everything else and this uh, you know this being the outsider, the outsider observer and looking in, right? right? Which I think is what is as artists we get attracted to, and you know whether or not you're coming there because you're you're like been pushed to the margins of society, or you're just interested in coming from the outside looking in, there's an attraction to that.
2: Well, and I think this is something that I've changed my tone on, but for a long time I was saying that my definition of queerness is not being an asshole, which is (laughs) Mm. to say that most people queer everyone's no, not most people biologically as humans everyone is queer in a broad sense Mm -hmm. and then it's just a question of what we choose to do with the way that we feel about being human are we defensive are we angry are we open so with time and reading and growing up I no longer define queerness as just not being an asshole (laughs) but I do think that that's part of I mean in regard to what you're saying it's like um and in regard to the love show it's like how do we look at something and try and think about all of the ways that it can be inclusive and all of the ways that it can be exclusionary and collectively attempt, or actually not even collectively attempt, attempt the collective through that.
0: Yeah, that's how I understood um, the way you had discussed it with the websites that I was reading. I, I, I did think you were looking for this broader definition when you were talking about it as a way of using it almost as a, a way of saying an ex—you know—an expression that can involve many marginalized peoples uh, done in a very um, accessible way.
2: Yeah, well, and I think that's part of what the love show is about for me. It's like, and, and I think it has a lot to do also with my background teaching high school, especially where I was teaching high school, which is a complicated place. But it's like I know people well enough to know that most people feel deeply, if not everyone, right? So, in some way, we, I mean, Everyone feels deeply ostracized, deeply in need of things that they can't have, deeply in awe of the experience of life. And then we try and through our relationships and through the way that we present ourselves to normalize that so that we can make it through whatever it is we have to make it through. And I just think that like a show like this, which, in, which is able to include as many different people as I could, and there's obviously still many holes is an opportunity to say like maybe more than queerness it's like humanness like it's just like this is how this is how we all feel about it and i think that that just the feeling is enough to connect it even if it's different ways mm-hmm. of feeling
1: it mm-hmm. one thing i kept thinking about was it's and now it's old news but for a while there was this whole discussion about you know curation is art and you know our curators artists as well and you know and like you know people making boundaries and saying, you know, come on, you know, I'm, a, I'm an artist, you're a curator, blah, 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 blah. And then more and more young artists uh, deciding to cure, be more curatorial in their practice from just including friends in group shows to doing things even more ambitiously. But looking at this show, the Love T- uh, 2016 show and the way you've installed it and, you know, starting off with the wallpaper, going on to everything about the way it's put together if anyone's familiar with your work or if they go and look at your work, there's a real feeling that as you walk into the gallery that you're also walking into like a Rachel Stern installation, right? And since your work often involves these large-scale installations in rooms, you know, through the magic of photography, it's very hard to tell the scale of these things sometimes if it's a tiny corner or if it's a massive, you know, warehouse space. But the, the space very much feels like Oh, this is now I'm walking into your world. You know what I mean? And so um, maybe you can talk about that in terms of curating a show or putting it together, where in a way you're also creating one of these environments that, like you do when you're making your own work.
2: So much of the driving force for the show was really selfish, right? Like I Mm -hmm. was putting together something that I wanted to see. And I don't think of myself as a curator. I'm into defining things. I think that defining things is good. And I think it's, really popular right now to move past that we've talked a lot about oceans of images not to throw shade on the photo blog but (laughs) i'm okay with calling a photograph a photograph and things that aren't (laughs) photographs not photographs i'm okay with calling a curator a curator and a graphic designer a graphic designer and not being all of those things right so putting it together was really based on the logic that i put together my work which is also the same logic by which together i put together my world like my Apartment looks like one of my photographs. My car looks like one of my photographs. Mm. My spaces feel the way that I want the world to feel. Right. So, this was a context in which I wanted to see this work, and with my own work, um, which I think I'm having a bit of a scary moment in the artist slash photographer world. It's really important for me to think of myself as a photographer primarily first, and then. I'm finding myself making things that aren't photography, and I'm not really sure how I feel about that.
1: Um, Artist identity crisis. Artist identity crisis. Thesis semester. Grad school (laughs) crisis. (laughs) Um,
2: So, but part of the way that I've been thinking about that is, like, I don't want to be complacent with displaying my photograph on a white wall. If the spaces I'm imaging would never have a white wall, why would that image then be displayed on a white wall? So I've been showing on marble walls or Wallpapered walls, or trying to think about how to break that up. So, this was an exciting opportunity for me to think about doing that with other people's work. You know, when I hang art in my apartment, I always hang it so it looks like it's hanging off of a black silk ribbon. You know, like there's, Mm. I have these sort of ideas about installation that are very much filtered through my own aesthetic. Right. And that you don't get the opportunity to do unless somebody gives you a gallery and says it's your show, go do it.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I could imagine. Uh, you photographing in that room, you know what I mean? Like that you would, that setting up, bringing a model in, doing something, and yeah. that would be part of the background. Well, it's
2: also, th- I mean, some of the artists were intentionally engaged in my practice and the works that they created. So Sheila Pepe has this giant hanging soft sculpture in the middle of the room. And she told me when she was installing it that she was literally thinking about it as a place where I might make a photograph while she was making it. Mm. And comically, I, <laughs> I wear almost only Mary Meko's and like a lot of striped dresses. And I was wearing this orange and red striped dress <laughs> that sort of clashed with the gallery. Cause I thought it was funny. Mm. And her sculpture was made out of Mary Meckos socks <laughs> with the exact same color stripe. Wow! Oh. <laughs> so I was like matching the sculpture and the gallery, you know, but it was, it meant a lot to me. I mean, an unbelievable amount to me that, that she would think that way, especially as an artist who has, as her work made viewing environments for photography. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the show she just did at Carol and Sons last year was a viewing environment to look at the work of three young female photographers. So she brought that part of her practice into, you know, this sort of strange offshoot of my practice.
1: So, forgetting kitsch, I think one of the things that was talked about before uh, was this idea of the high and the low, right? Mm-hmm. And that... Um, like I remember seeing your portfolio when you applied for the graduate program and uh, you know, we're looking at it in slide room and it wasn't until you really like zoom in and look at it. And of course, when you came for the interview, you brought these large prints and it became clear that there was the aesthetic, but that you were using these low, you know, things from the 99 cent store and everywhere else to create these environments, which later we could talk about in terms of kitsch. But if anything, this winds up being the ultimate high version of that. And in other words, like not it's not just stuff you got at the 99 cent store. It's all artwork from artists whose work you admire are now being used to create this environment. Right. So, yeah. Well, what's that like? I mean, it's
2: I mean, Alex Decourt makes these works. I mean, an Alex Decourt show some of the time is a room that he's painted crazy colors and has borrowed artworks from the collection of the institution where he's showing and arranged them in the way that he wants to see them so that you're looking at like a Renica Dykstra next to a whatever, a Giacometti, who knows, you know, like stacked up in this crazy kind of assemblage. And um, it's funny, I'm like suddenly feeling self-conscious that I'm saying all the stuff I'm recording. It's (laughs) It's funny that I actually don't love that work. I mean, I think I understand why he does it and I can see how valuable it is in a certain, in a certain sense. But I think that I could sit with it more easily if it, if they were shows that he curated as opposed to a work that he made. I have trouble Mm. with that somehow. And maybe it's just, I need more time to chew on it or think about it. But he just did a VALS last semester, um, our visiting artist lecture series. And he was talking about this. And I remember think having a really hard time thinking about that particular part of his practice. He's an artist I really admire. And not at one moment working on this project did I really make like a correlation between Mm. that way of thinking and what I was doing I don't know I think it's interesting like I I really felt like I was just curating a show Mm -hmm. I really didn't feel like I was making one of my pieces or working on an installation and I think that maybe I don't know I think maybe that's just how things come out of my hands like I think it's so ingrained in my like physical constructivist thought process that it's just how it comes together yeah you're
0: you're still creating right so yeah. i mean how are you going to get around what you what you're familiar with creating um of your own work when you're you know you've got this freedom and this control
2: and also so much of what i do is j- literally just following the rules like of art history you know mm-hmm. so decisions about where I place things in the frame or how I'm layering materials or wallpaper or how I'm hanging things on the wall are literally, I'm just like looking at something and copying it, you know, it's not a lot. So, which is exciting to me. It's something that I'm really grateful for. I think of like all this groundwork that's been done that I can then just pull from. But so it doesn't surprise me, especially that my practice is so engaged in the history of decorative arts and the history of the collection that when I put together a collection in sort of a domestic space which we could think of the gallery in any form as being a somewhat domestic space that it would have the same conceptual you know like through lines
1: yeah this is a kind of intersection where if you start off with the decorative arts and think literally about wallpaper and everything here it's getting maybe even closer to the idea of the the high-end designer versus the decorative arts who might go through and say oh Yeah, this room, yeah, what you need to do is you need to get yourself some, you know, matte life height wallpaper, (laughs) and we're going to get you, uh, you know, uh, you know, a photograph
0: over here by Tom Roma and this over here, you know, and and this projector is lamp pointing up to the ceiling. Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) I dream
2: of being an interior decorator. My grandmother was an interior decorator. I have a friend from school who studied furniture design, a guy named Adam Hyman, who's an interior decorator, and it's, to me, it seems like, I mean, obviously an art, an art practice or an artistic practice, but also like, I mean, I would love people to go to people's homes and be like, "Mm, there needs to be a Roma over here. (laughs) Let's just go to Stephen Kasher and pick one up, you know?
1: (laughs) So part of what uh, this also made me think of is this challenge as artists uh, to be aware of the work of other artists and to be aware of uh, not just the canon, but contemporary work and what's going on out there and you've always struck me as someone who's very aware of uh you've or you've gone through periods of really paying attention and reaching out and looking to find out more about your contemporaries and um, maybe the people a couple right above you or whatever um can you talk about that process i remember asking you specifically about how you found one of the artists and you said you had you discovered their work on a blog or something during time when you were looking oh, yeah. in, in the blogosphere, right? Um,
2: yeah, well, I, actually kind of the opposite. She discovered me. We're ta- you're talking oh. about Hobbs Ginsburg. Okay. Um, or you know, We discovered each other, I guess would be the fair way to say it. I think it really comes down. So Henry Hornstein was my first photography professor at RISD. Wow. Um, we're also from the same town. <laughs> um, I feel Henry's very important to me. and. He said on the very first day of class in the photo department at RISD, this thing that paired with a second piece of advice that I'll tell you in a second has really shaped the way that I deal with with things like that. So basically what he said is the art world is full of cutthroat people who are going to try and pull you down to get ahead. And it's your responsibility to just not do that and to be the type of person who pulls everybody up with you. Mm -hmm. And through that you'll actually get ahead. And he Basically just said, like, look, I've been making work for a long time. I've been doing a lot of different things because he has a super multifaceted practice. He does commercial work, fine art, books, textbooks, teaching, da-da-da-da-da. And he was like, I've just met a lot of people, and this is – just trust me. Just accept this. And I remember at that moment being like, I accept that, and that is the way I'm going to operate. And I really believe in it. I've had a lot of good experience through that mentality. Mm -hmm. We also had an artist named Shane Lavalette who's only a few years ahead of me in school – who ran a publication called Lay Flat, which is now called La and he also works at Lightwork. But he came to talk to us in a books and publication class I was taking. And he said, you know, he was an undergrad or maybe he had just graduated and he showed us his first issue of Lay Flat and it had like insane, like Baldessari was in it. I mean, there was like insane stuff in this publication. And we were all kind of like, well, how did you do that? And he said, I, I just asked. right? And if you just ask people you'll find out that a lot of the time people say yes and I think that those were really just like fundamental lessons that I just follow really closely and I think it's something I talk about it's really important to my understanding of teaching like it's something I've talked about to the undergrads David Godless came to the opening and Spencer Cohen saw him taking a picture of me and was like who is that guy it's like that's david godless go say hi he photographed the ramones go go <laughs> and spencer walked up to him and said you know like hi i'm david i'm spencer cohen you're david godless and you know who, probably that means nothing they just spoke for a minute but you know i think that that's how you have to be willing to walk up to people and say hi you're david godless no
0: you had a, a really good generous foundation in teaching
2: yeah, yeah. i mean big time mm-hmm. i think um that was also kind of the beauty of RISD in general is, and I'm so grateful for it is that we were raised in like the farm version of the art world hmm. so that I see it so much with, I know a lot of undergrads in the photo world in New York because they're undergrads and they're already hustling, you know, they're already shooting for publications. They're already like working as if they were just like out of school and like working artists. And I think that aren't, or, or photographers, which could mean something else for them. But I think that that was what was so great about being in this sort of like small private community that felt really art worldy but actually wasn't is that we got to kind of decide how we were going to exist in the art world before we had to go do it. Before you were in it. Right. Right. And I'm really grateful for that for RISD in general. I think they did a really good job with that sort of balancing act.
0: Maybe we should uh start heading backwards a little bit You're okay. at RISD where we uh what was uh, before then when when did photography become a, an interest in your life oh
2: gosh that is a that goes way back. I have a picture so I remember maybe you would know the technical information about this camera Uh-oh. I had a camera <laughs> that came In a bubble, I just. That's okay. They came in a bubble wrapped piece of plastic, like attached to a book called How to Make Photography. Hmm. The camera was very long and skinny. It looked like that about, and it had a pop up viewfinder. And the film that went in, it looked like it's a little a telephone. Oh yeah,
0: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was either one ten or one twenty six. Was the other the bigger yeah, cartridge? was Probably like, one ten. Yeah, oh, one ten yeah. was a skinny little cartridge, and if you held it in profile, it looked like I a would, telephone. I would play an telephone, telephone, telephone receiver. With it. Right. So,
2: so I got this book. Oh, Must we have, have to f- clarify?
0: You know, the telephone, the hardwired. <laughs> uh, yes, <right>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the kind uh, your grandparents use. Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> the kind, the kind that. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> At that same point in my life, I had built, I had gotten one of those kits to build your own phone. I still have mm. it, like a clear blue. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, I, I remember that it said to take pictures of flowers, and I... Hmm. I spent a lot of time in my mother's garden taking pictures of like the dogs and the flowers and, and it was very serious to me, but it wasn't until, um, so I photographed basically my whole life and at summer camp I was able to photograph. And then when I started high school, my mom gave me my grandfather's knicker mat F1. And from there on out, it got really serious so that by the time I graduated high school and my photography teacher, Mr. Christopher Cunningham is a great guy who really let me run wild. But <laughs> by the time I graduated, I had convinced my parents to buy me a sign RF, wow. and the school to buy me a fifty—I uh, think it was a fifty-five-inch by a hundred-foot roll of silver paper, silver—you know, like wow. silver gelatin paper—and yeah, yeah. I had turned my teacher's office into a mural printing dark room <laughs> and taken over half of the dark and built trades And I was making four-by-five-foot silver prints in my senior year of high school, which was insane. Um,
1: Because we already heard about the fact that you had the rest of your photographic project was hidden behind a red right. curtain. But and that was not because maple tor- of him. He yeah, was yeah. very <laughs> supportive.
2: I mean, they, there was just like, I had a key to the film drawer, you know? Like, they right. just let me go. As in, there was no holding me back. I was hugely supported to make it happen. Mm. My parents took me to ICP. You know, we lived in Massachusetts, but they would drive me in and we'd go to ICP. A, a formative, formative moment was seeing the Avidon portrait show at the Met, which I'll never forget. Mm. And interestingly, both my grandfather's photographed in different sort of hobbyist ways my grandmother later in life married a person who was really a photographer and now most of my cameras and enlargers come from him and my father's best friend is a commercial photographer so in this weird way where like my parents are both in medicine and like there's you know like there's lots of artistic kind of vibes going around I happen to be surrounded by photographers and every house that I went to was full of photography books my parents can both talk about photography very easily so it's been there for always yeah and and RISD came right after high school or? yeah so I really didn't want to go to RISD because I oh. grew up near Providence right and I felt like New York was calling me <laughs> um, and due to a variety of acceptance and rejection letters <laughs> I found myself at RISD <laughs> and I was sure that I re- you know I really wanted to go to Columbia to study journalism I wanted to be hmm. a photojournalist and because um, hmm. I have this other previous life as a lefty which I'm terrible at and I had horrible guilt at not being a good political activist so I was constantly trying to figure out
0: you, you're saying you're a terrible liberal <laughs>
2: I, I'm a really bad liberal and I come from a really radical family and I always feel bad about it and my brother is constantly giving me like readings by Marx, telling me that like art is important and that it's okay that I'm an artist and I like so I felt modes at, of production right so at that time I felt like the solution was that I, I no longer could meet my goal of being an ACLU lawyer <laughs> and instead I could become a photojournalist right and then I found myself at RISD and I was like um (laughs) so I I chose RISD out of the schools that I got into because I really believed in their foundation year and I was like if I want to be able to make pictures I need to learn how to draw I need to learn about all these things so my plan was that I would go to RISD for foundation year and then transfer out which is also hilarious to me now (laughs) so I finished foundation year which was brutal I didn't take I didn't have access to a dark room I'm sure I shot like crazy but I don't know I mean that film must have just built up it was really hard for me and then I applied for transfer. Didn't work out. Ah. <laughs> in, in total despair, I began my second year at RISD. And I would say within five minutes of being in the photo department, I was completely in love. Nowhere else I'd rather because be. Because you were out
0: of the foundation year, you could really get to the studio work that you wanted yeah, to and do? Because
2: Henry Hornstein is an amazing right. person. And what Henry teaches you, which is something I already had but I didn't have community for, was how to love photography. Mm-hmm. It's something that actually... Henry Hornstein and, and Tom Roma, I think, are as different as two people could possibly be. But the thing that they really share that's so hugely important, and I think the thing that makes, especially their two undergraduate programs, so strong is they teach you how... I was going to say how to love photography, but that's not right. They teach you how photography is a means by which you can express what's like really happening. And I think that Henry it raises the stakes and you suddenly realize that like um, there's no such thing as just taking pictures and and then everything falls into place. So Henry really gave me a lot in terms of like giving me permission to like not feel guilty about being a journalist and to really like do the thing that I was there to do. And we had amazing faculty. Steve Smith um, I, allowed me to be in his large format photography class my first semester, which is against the rules. You know, like I was really – just given a lot of space to care a lot about photography which you know is yeah. important
0: well you and you you actually um, mentioned that as well you said uh, not not necessarily how to love but but you you do you do mention that with a, a few people about being able to love photography but I think I think in in some ways what it sounds like is people also recognize your passion and your interest and your excitement and that makes them kind of excited about it too and they want to give you More and more opportunities to pursue that.
2: Yeah, I've been really, I've been immensely lucky with people uh, being excited to or willing to work with me. I I met Mary Ellen um, with Henry in his professional practices. Mary Ellen Mark. Mary Ellen Mark, sorry. Um, And the first thing that I ever did when my family got a home printer for our computer was print out Mary Ellen's photographs and I slept in the bottom bunk under my brother and I cut them all out and taped them on the like ceiling above me
0: mm-hmm. so
2: meeting Mary Ellen I like brought every book of hers that I had it carried them around my backpack all weekend while we went to visit people waiting to get to her studio and her studio we were just talking about it looks like what my life looked like at that point. I've shifted the way I deal with collection now, but (laughs) just full of tchotchkes and like the the collection and the photographs on her walls. She has these sepia toned, um, what is the guy's name who photographed Native Americans? Uh, Curtis. Curtis, she has Cebu tone. Curtises in her bathroom. Okay, yes. like yes, like in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. like. <laughs> so I I got into that space and I was like, this yeah. is my space in a big big way, and I asked her to sign my book. I was I was carrying on a Polaroid camera. Can that possibly be right? We took a Polaroid together, and then I emailed her and asked if I could come intern. And Mary Ellen has an army of interns at all times. I mean, one of the things I love about her practice is that she created a space for her to teach outside of any formal.
0: There's a waiting list of interns for Marilyn Mark Studio. And of course, Marilyn passed away last year. and so, you know, things are changing at the studio, but right, when when uh, uh, Marilyn was with us, there was always a long list of interns waiting to get in. So if you got that, position we were actually pretty fortunate
2: I felt incredibly fortunate and on top of that I mean like in terms of this army of interns basically what I did for the first few weeks I was there was work on her new website which was designed as an archive for students to have access to where you could look up portraits of celebrities by name and see like every image there was every article I mean just very community-minded and generous in that sense but Mary Ellen and I and I I know that she had this with many people, but for me, we were able to have a a very special relationship, um, which was different than I think a lot of the interns. And, um, it just, it just like, it sounds cheesy to say, but just meant the world to me. It was like, this person was why I, why I make pictures and you don't think that you get to meet those people. And if you do get to meet them, you don't think that they're going to be generous in that way. I mean, she invited my parents over to the studio and bought them a fancy cake and like, you know.
0: I mean, she was a force to be reckoned with because if, you know, if you were kind of on the outside, didn't know her, she could be quite intimidating as well. And she did not mince words.
2: Oh, no. So here's, this is my secret Mary Ellen story that I've been waiting to decide if I feel comfortable breaking.
1: All right, we're ready. Are you ready? Yep.
2: And, and I have visual evidence that I can provide later. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so one of, my favorite thing that we did together was Mary Ellen invited myself and my friend Matt Leifheit to go with her to her workshop at the Woodstock Center for Photography. And the deal was basically I had a car, so I would drive her, and then we could, I think we stayed at, like, Woodstock had a relationship with a motel, we got this motel room, and um, we sort of, like, unofficially TA'd for the workshop. Hmm. the theme of the workshop was that you would go to this county fair and photograph at this county fair okay so we drive mary ellen up you can imagine it is awesome driving mary ellen out (laughs) of new york city it was an amazing experience dealing with like traffic or like side routes this is a woman who knew exactly what she wanted and i'm into it so i'm like following like the best gps you've ever you've ever heard so um we get up and we, we do the workshop and everything's great. And you know, the center for photography at Woodstock is an amazing place. And I guess Ariel Schamberg has left now, but Yeah. yeah, but he, but he's great. And it was just really exciting to, you know, be there and see the workshop happen. So we go to this county fair and we're photographing and, um, I went to a booth where you could stand in front of, like, an airbrushed tropical kind of backdrop, and they would photograph you and make a big pin of your face. (laughs) Nice. And at that time, I was wearing a lot of, like, um, Senegalese kind of Dutch wax print African textiles, so it looked really crazy. Like, I was, like, (laughs) in front of this crazy thing looking really crazy. And I then took the pin with my image on it and wore it on top of this crazy outfit. So it was, like, a lot of layers of crazy... (laughs) And Mary Ellen saw the pin on me and was like, that's the most fantastic thing I've ever seen. I need one. Take me to the booth. (laughs) So I take Mary Ellen to the booth. She does it. She looks amazing. Opposite as me because she's in all black with her black braids and her black She looks unbelievable. (laughs) And the way that they do it is you do it and you pay. And then they say, come back in like a half hour and we'll have your button. So Mary Ellen does her thing and leaves. And then I in like a blackout moment of absolute adoration and loss of morals walk up to the booth and I'm like you need to print me a second button of that lady and give it to me and don't tell her So I have them do it. They give me the button. Everything happens. Mary Ellen comes, gets her button. She looks at it and she goes, this is the worst picture of me I've ever oh, seen. I hate it. Throws it in the trash can and walks away. And now I'm like, oh my God, I have a second <laughs> have a copy. copy. So I have these two pins. of Oh, you took it out of the garbage. No, I had already bought, bought the, I already oh, had my Oh, yours my and yours. Oh, so, I thought you
0: fished hers no, out of no, the garden. No. I, I was like not going to let her
2: see. But so now I have my pin and her pin together. Oh, that's nice. Like
0: well, you mess. have that now forever. Yeah. That's nice. Against <laughs> her wishes. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. Well, and and you mentioned Mary Ellen Mark and Thomas Roma and Harry Hornste- Hornstein and Harry Callahan as well as people who've taught you.
2: Yeah. Well, Harry, I I mean, one of my nerdiest favorite things about photography is that because it's so young, the lineage is really tangible, which is really exciting. And so for me, Harry Callahan is important twofold. One is that in a familial relationship with photography, my father's from Gary, Indiana. And so the Chicago School of Photography is really important. And it's really different than what we talk about on the East Coast guys like Ishimoto or Callahan or a lot of really good photographers out there. So, um, In that sense, he's important to me. Then he also photographed in Providence, Rhode Island, which is hugely important to me, (laughs) and founded the photography department at RISD, which was originally a class in the graphic design department. He then hired Siskin, this whole thing. So... Henry tells stories about talking with Harry Hmm. and I learned from that, you know, like my favorite is there's a black and white video of Harry Callahan accusing Henry Hornstein of cropping
0: (laughs) (laughs) and really accusing him. I mean, the stakes are very high. I crop
2: like a mad woman. I'm such a cropper. It's ridiculous, but it's sort of like, you know, a lot of Henry would use Harry as a foil to sort of, communicate these ideas about photography in the same way that when I teach, I use Henry and Harry to talk about things. And it's it's just <laughs> exciting for me to be able to sort of go like that to history, yeah. <laughs> just reach out and touch it. <laughs>
1: yeah. In our podcast with Charles Traub, we talked a little bit about that whole Chicago school and how tight everything was over there, but how very different it was than yeah. what was coming on either one of the coasts. All coming
2: out of IIT. It was like this insane post um Bauhaus kind of and also because the Japanese photographers had such a strong relationship with Chicago and I mean provoke and post post post-war Japanese photography is like one of my favorite moments in photo history Mm. so the way that kind of collides with American photography in Chicago is like amazing Mm.
1: just now going forward so you after RISD then you were out on your own for a little while before graduate school right yeah and you wound up setting up a studio for yourself there and um you wound up uh then starting to work with uh students of your own and everything and that actually talking about this collaborative thing which i think ties back into this show is you want to talk about how that collaborative element find up being such a big part of your practice
2: so um leaving RISD, I, I decided that I was going to take a year off to just make art. And two weeks after making that decision, I got a job, a full time job at RISD and no longer took a year off to just make art. And I was (laughs) really upset about it because I was super focused on like being an artist. And I thought that I had like entered into this distraction, but you got to pay rent and you know, the way that things go. So, um, I started working at RISD in a graduate department called the Department of Teaching and Learning in Art and Design, underneath a man named Doctor Paul. Doctor Paul Sprol. Wow, it's crazy. Mm. I haven't said that name in a minute. Um, <laughs> Paul is an amazing, amazing, wor- like world-renowned thinker about arts education, um, and somebody who I'm really lucky to have been able to spend time with. But I worked for him. He, he ran a program at RISD called Project Open Door, which is basically like um, a teaching lab for the community arts MA students. And we would work with students from around Rhode Island and bring them to RISD for portfolio development and college access with a focus on the arts. But also we would go into schools and teach in classrooms. And that's mostly what I ended up focusing on. I did teach at RISD a fair amount. Um, and I did work with the graduate students a fair amount, but teaching in high public high schools in Rhode Island became a hugely important thing to me, and it was something I both did through RISD and independently, primarily at a school called Central Falls High School, which is in a city called Central Falls in Rhode Island. Um, it's a one square mile city, completely surrounded by Pawtucket, which is the biggest um, suburb of Providence. Is it the biggest? I think it is. It's one of the biggest anyway. Um, since We're going to get hate
1: mail coming in for the <laughs> Like Cranston is yeah, going to be like, yeah, yeah. oh no, yeah. pa- it's the oldest rivalry. Yeah, yeah. Pawtucket, my ass. You know? <laughs> um,
2: but it's interesting because Pawtucket is where a lot of the money went when Providence was an industrial city. So now it's not such a wealthy place. There are nice areas, but there are these unbelievable pieces of architecture. Of course, everywhere in Rhode Island has that feeling. Mm. Central Falls is a very difficult place the city government is bankrupt like I said it's only one square mile and it's become a place where a lot of the state's problems kind of stay while the people move through so it's a relatively short-term community but there's um it's got you know like uh, the highest instances of um, school dropout of teen drug use of teen pregnancy of um, gang violence you know there's a lot of kinds of things that sort of stay in this place and it has not such a great reputation it it got national attention because it was one of the first high schools to do a mass firing of all of the teachers so they're like obama quotes that talk about what happened in central falls Um, the inverse of that is that it becomes a place where there's a huge amount of flexibility because there's no funding for anything. The funding is all coming from outside places. And I was able to work with a woman there named Elizabeth Oaks, who ran these expanded learning opportunities, which basically means I was able to be a credit granting art teacher without being a licensed art educator. These are the types of programs that can be very problematic and also be really amazing. I really, I come from a family with a lot of teachers. I believe in education as an independent concept. And I see a lot of issues with the way that, Things like Teach for America can be really problematic. But the experience that I was able to have with these students, I hope, was as great for them as it was for me. I worked really in two different programs, both of which were hugely important to my practice in really different ways. One is that I worked in a program called Square Mile, which was basically like a, we'll say... um, This is not a term I like, but at-risk youth. I had a lot of students um, who were pregnant or were dealing with incarceration or had different types of cognitive or emotional issues. Um, That room looked like a jail. It was in the basement of the building. It was made out of cinder blocks. There was one small window in the corner, a weightlifting bench in the other corner. And it was a place where you would watch a teacher say in front of a student, like, I hate my job. Why do I even bother Mm. with this? And I don't want to condemn the whole program because there were also amazing, like many teachers who were totally the opposite and a huge amount of care, but it had a very bad reputation. And I would say it wasn't easy, but it was also an experience for me where very quickly you realize, like if you just treat people like they're humans, they tend to treat you like you're a human and things are okay. And I worked with mostly a group of young men there on a project that ended up being part of this Smithsonian project called The Will to Adorn, Um, which looks at street fashion and African-American culture. Um, But we worked together to basically photograph each other and um, their community, specifically looking at fashion and adornment and beauty in a place where there is not a huge amount of that. And it really changed, I think, the stakes for me about art making, that it put into perspective how much privilege. I mean, I've always known to some extent how privileged my life has been in terms of education and exposure to the arts and my family, but the privilege of literally being in a place that is beautiful, Mm. which could mean clean, could mean a lot of different things was something that I had been blind to. And I had never had to fight for that. And suddenly we were in a place where we did and it just changed in regard to like my, um, guilt about not being a political activist it made me feel like making a beautiful thing is political activism Mm. in the right context Mm. it also the other program that we were I worked in was called fashionista which was this amazing unbelievable thing which was a student-founded club that turned into a credit-granting art class on paper it was about fashion modeling fashion photography design and makeup art Mm. but what it was really was like a queer boot camp for kids. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of baby drag queens and people working out their gender and sexual identities in a very sort of closed, often homophobic, very small community. And we were able to do this in school to work toward graduation, which was really astounding. And between these two experiences, both the stakes felt very high because both groups of artists were risking a lot and putting a lot in to make the work that they were making. But also it changed um, both of you guys I think at different points have mentioned material and accessibility and it changed the way that I felt about complacency with the way that the world looks and the way that we experience and exist in the world. So it no longer felt okay to say our classroom is just a cinder block room and that's what we have. Nor was it okay to say, why don't we build a new classroom or buy some nice wallpaper because those were things that we didn't have access to. So it's like, well, we're not just going to be okay with it and we can't just totally change it, so what are we going to do? And that became this moment where it's like, what do we have and how much can we change our experience with what we have? And the answer is a lot. You can do a lot with a little. And in Fashionista especially, we would design, we would work in these little professional practice units. You would have a makeup artist, a director of photography. I'm sorry, not a director of photography. That would be for video. um. What do you call that? Art director, a photographer, a model, a fashion designer, and they would really put together fashion stories. I mean, they would build sets in the cafeteria, whatever it was, using garbage from the art room that they weren't using in class. Mm. And I brought that back to my studio. You were you were working as like a, a business practice uh, yeah. class. Totally, and yeah. some of those some of those guys are working as photographers now mm. in their community. I mean, shooting kinsays and weddings and doing, I mean, one of them just got flown to some tropical island to shoot a wedding. It's amazing. They work really hard. And it for me, it was like at the end of the day, two things. One is, like I had this one student named Anna who I knew throughout her pregnancy and then after her child was born. And she would go home every day after class, walk, whatever it was, a half mile home. I know because once I brought her home that she has to walk up four flights of a narrow spiral staircase to pick up her daughter Then she would walk back down the stairs, walk with her daughter back to school and stay for like two hours working on her designs because Anna wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm. And when it was time to model, she would make a dress for herself and a dress for her daughter and they would model together because Mm. that was the life that Anna wanted. So for me after that, and then she would go home and cook dinner for her husband and do her homework and do all that stuff. It's like when I would go home and be like, I really just, I don't feel like going to studio today. (laughs) No, you go to studio. (laughs) And also Anna is going to show me her new design tomorrow. What am I going to show <laughs> yeah. Anna tomorrow? I better have something to show What's her. What's my excuse? I have to be working. If they're working, <laughs> right. I'm going to be working. So I think that community, I'm still in, you know, I'm still in touch with my students and I wish that I could see them more often, but. Was that also at the high school level? It was at high school yeah. level. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I taught middle school and high school and I taught it probably like five or six different high schools. Central Falls is just nearest and dearest to my heart. They did truly amazing work there i mean like these artists are really serious artists
0: yeah you know high schools come up a a few times with uh, talking about your high school teacher Uh and uh you having that 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 opera the opportunities that he gave you right and it actually reminded me of my time in high school as well when, when i got interested in photography you know i also became that that person who could also was allowed to roll his own film, but also then start rolling the film for all the other students uh-huh. and come to the dark room when nobody else was there and there was no class and things like that. and uh, you know I, I we we probably don't mention those high school photographers enough. those high school photography teachers enough as influence uh, influencing a lot of photographers today. You know a lot of it's easy to remember those college professors who had a great impact right. on you and people you meet in the professional world, but those high school uh, photography professors, really get you at the very beginning oh
2: yeah and it and it's mostly about for me it was about how much they would let me run mm. and it it meant a lot that i was able to do a lot with it but i mean isn't like i think gina beavers teaches like middle school art class you know like that's yeah. like a that's yeah. like a serious that's, painter who's like doing yeah. finger painting with kids you know <laughs> i think that i think that um i've always wanted to teach and i definitely want to teach at many different levels But I think that teaching high school in this country in general, in and outside of the arts, is looked at as like a menial job and not given a lot of respect, but it's a huge deal and it's super fulfilling. Unfortunately, there's no infrastructure to support it. So I understand why people don't want to be teachers or have a hard time continuing to be happy Yeah, most of the time I I speak
0: to my students in college who just came from high school, their photo programs are maybe a few digital cameras and they they send it out to send their images to a lab to get yeah. little prints and things like that. Or, you know, we were doing
2: mostly cell phone photography because wow. we had no budget at all. Mm. And on the one hand, you know, I would bring in a film camera to show them how an aperture worked. I mean, I think there are some things that you just can't understand. But on the other hand, it was like you're not going to be able to buy a film camera or buy film. There's no dark room in your town. Mm-hmm. Your phone is always in your pocket and you can make pretty good photography on your phone. So like I kind of am I'm not kind of I'm super into the idea of teaching with the tools that the student will be able to leave with.
1: And if there are any high school students who are listening to the podcast today... They should know that you could take a g- amazing three-week intensive photography <laughs> class with Rachel Stern at Columbia University oh, yes. this summer. I'm very excited. summer high school class. She'll be teaching it for the first We're uh, going to have
2: a lot of
0: fun. Yeah. So, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. Is this your first time doing it? Uh, here. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. No, I think it's going to be great. And we'll be in the dark room, which will be like, it's the, I think the dark room's the best in the summer because the. <laughs> Stop, bath, really smell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. You
0: get the real vanilla. You really stuff. come out smelling like dark room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you really did something, right? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I guess the last thing I had on my mind to, was to tie all these things together is going back to your Henry Hornstein quote and uh, going back to this great uh, anecdote you just told about collaborating with these students there's two things, I guess now. I gotta mention wrap uh, Matt back into this Matt Wi-fi mm-hmm. because not, not only providing that uh, amazing uh, wallpaper background, but also talk about the catalog. If right. You, mention that really quickly. And then, um, I just want to reiterate this idea of uh, collaboration or like, like I also you know would play I played music in a band in Brooklyn when I first moved to New York, and the 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 world of musicians is much more collaborative open and Necessarily. like, Hey, come, you know, we're playing on Friday night at uh, Ina's you should come and sit in on a couple of songs or this, that, and the other thing. And the, the world of the visual artists is less likely to be that. And, you know, by being, by curating a show and putting 47 artists in it, I mean, uh, in a way is, is another way of kind of embracing that way of being generous and, and trying to um, not, not shut it down, not just be, you know, me, 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 but also say, look, there's other great people making work out there and uh, I want to show them to you and show you them in the best light and bring them under this umbrella of this idea I have. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I'll, I'll speak to that first and then I'll go back to the catalog, but I don't know if this sounds, this might be like a brag, but I believe it, <laughs> but I play hard for the team. I really believe in the team and and my time at Columbia, that's been a big part of what I've done here working. I run the I run with my with another team. I run the Visual Artist Lecture Series, which serves the community with a different team. I helped organize the summer show last year for everybody. And I just find that like, first of all, I find it really fulfilling and something that I'm good at. It's the type of thing that I can get done. But I also just find that like I have a crazy work ethic. I work constantly. And I don't ever really question my ability to make my own work. That's something that just happens automatically. And I know that I have the extra energy to make these other things happen. And for me, it's like the way that my community exists reflects how I exist and vice versa. And the more I can do to make the places that I'm at have a lot going on while I'm there and afterward, um, that can only help me as much as it helps everybody else. And it's fun. And it's, I mean... The Love Show, that opening was insane. Yeah, that was wild. I spent most of the opening outside in the hallway because I was, like, too panicked (laughs) to be in there. And it's, I mean, it's just, like, exciting to me. Like, you know, I think part of it is also being, like, not to get emo on here, but being, like, a weird, like, nerdy kid who was never popular and, like, always felt like a loner that, like, when you get to a moment where you can pull something together that makes a lot of people happy and makes everyone come together, it's, like... Amazing. I, I love doing that. I also, to talk about the catalog, collaborate, you know, the whole show was done with friends and um, Joseph Kaplan and Paula Go are some of my dearest friends. Paul wrote the poetry and the big wall text and in the catalog. And Joseph is an amazing graphic designer who works at Todd Oldham studio and for the um, Pulitzer Museum and a bunch of different sort of amazing institutions and um, the three of us work together on projects a lot. So Paul will often write poetry and then I'll put photographs with it or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And Joseph will design that collaboration. And Matt lifeheight who runs Matt Magazine, which he launched as our two-person undergraduate thesis show mm-hmm. um, at RISD, has, is also someone I work with all the time. We've done two issues of Matt together about my work. Um, we've worked on endless other projects and when he offered to do a map magazine as the catalog it was really exciting because we sort of had this built-in team of people in this case mostly from RISD Paul's not from RISD but Joseph is who we could sort of assemble and make this thing happen that's like spectacular and it's not really on much of a budget, you know? Like the magazines are on demand, so we didn't have to pre-order a stock. We could just sort of design it and put it there for people who wanted it. But Joseph did unbelievable design. I felt like for 47 artists, I would have done some sort of horrible, multi-image per page, <laughs> like mm-hmm. disastrous kind of cramped thing. And he really gave everyone their space. And um, Matt also works on the design and the two of them put it together. I think it looks beautiful and is really fair to everyone.
1: Yeah, we'll have a link uh, on this episode so people can go and see the catalog online and order a copy. If and they want.
2: D- yeah, and it's exciting too because then it also gives the show life outside of the Neiman Center. So right. it's going to be at the LA Art Book Fair. It's stocked at Printed Matter. It's stocked oh, nice. at PS One Art Bookstore. So it, it's like exciting because it also makes you know a huge amount of work for a one month show at a gallery very far uptown that's not going to get a lot of foot traffic. Um, <laughs> You know, it makes it so that it, f- for the artists and for myself and for the gallery, the investment is able to like live on. And I'm really grateful for Matt and Joseph and Paul who put in a lot of work to make that happen.
1: Great. Well, I know that I'm going to go home to my apartment tonight and look around and be uh, upset with myself for all the great artwork I have in drawers that I haven't framed and put on the wall yeah. yet. Oh, know? tell it's me like, about yeah. it. I have, I have yeah. some...
0: Some Mary Ellen Mark photos that I've been sitting on for the longest time. The only photograph
2: on the wall in my apartment is a Mary Ellen (laughs) (laughs) When I moved, it's the only one I wanted to hang. (laughs) It's the only one that's gone up. Uh Actually, it's not true. And then I have some like vintage,
0: non-specific. And and Kai, you just gave me a print too that I've been uh, staring at for a while, uh, getting ready to frame and hang. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you don't remember? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, what did I give you? (laughs) You you gave me a uh, uh, oh shoot I'm gonna blank on it now oh the kudzu project that's right I know yeah, I yeah. gave you something you're right
1: <laughs> yes I gave you an eight by ten contact, contact print yes. yeah. that's nice yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we'll edit that back together so it'll sound like that's
0: we're... right <laughs> oh you gave me that eight by ten contact yeah. printer kudzu yeah, there you go <laughs>
1: beautiful well Rachel thank you so very much for participating and yeah, thanks, coming guys. here
0: yeah this was fantastic thank you I really yeah. appreciate it And yeah.
2: I hope that there's a lot of love in 2016. Yes, and
0: 2017. And and all the teens (laughs) thereafter. Exactly. Bye, everyone.